Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. All brought to you by the PRTG Network Monitor from Paisler.com, which monitors your IT infrastructure 24-7 and alerts you to problems before your users even notice. You can check out their system at www.paisler.com to find out how you can work smarter, faster and better. Remember, as well as our own show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app. We keep you bang up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie Now I'm joined uh, this week as always by Niall Kitson, our Editor-in-Chief. Lots going on Niall. I suppose the first one really is Alphabet the parent company for Google has been hit with Now, this is a significant fine because we were talking last week about Facebook getting a ridiculously small fine from the uh, UK regulator. This is a real fine from the EU to, uh, to Alphabet. How much was it? Yeah, well, let's let's specify, first of all, this uh, fine isn't to do with personal data, right? This is to do with um, competition. So we can delve into sort of uh, the elements on which Alphabet was fined, uh, all to do with um, Android. However, we are looking at a fine of 4.34 billion euro. Thankfully, at last, money that a tech firm will pay attention to. Yes, but when you think about Google and you think about Alphabet, all right, uh, you kind of think, ah, blah, blah, billion euro, da, da, that's not going to really affect it. But when you look at it this way, okay, that, that's a roughly a four billion euro fine for a company that makes a profit, okay, just their profit, not their turnover, their profit is about yeah. 12 billion a year. So the mm. EU are essentially taking a third of their profit as a fine. Yep. Yeah, and that you know, this isn't the the only case that Google is uh, is fighting as well. I mean, they they are they've already appe- appealing a decision last year where they were fined two point four billion over favoring their own e commerce stores over competition. So again, this is a similar thing. Google, it's almost because they're so big. It it reminds me of the the Microsoft Intel dealings from, you know, x number of years ago. Mm. It must be about 10 years ago now where they basically owned the market and it was impossible for anyone else to compete. And this is effectively what Google has done with Android because it's almost, you know, it's on 80% of smartphones worldwide. And it was uh, found to be in breach of competition uh, rules in the EU on on three grounds, all of which make complete sense. Um okay, first one uh making um google the default search on um an android smartphone mm-hmm. yeah and if you don't put google as uh, the default search you don't get access to google play or google streaming services so basically if you're not if the if you decide okay i'm going to make you know firefox the default search engine and firefox uses yahoo forget about it no app store for you Second one, they prevent manufacturers from running third-party operating systems that they like. Uh, So, for example, say you want a phone that is a a variation on Tizen or something. Google might go, yeah, you know what, we're we're, we're not really into that. We're not going to put Google search on it. Forget you guys. Uh, And the third one, uh, and related to the above, is basically all of this limits consumer choice. This is something that we had a similar issue with 
um, with Internet Explorer and your choice of browsers. Uh, this is something that the EU hit Microsoft with um, again a good few years ago now. Uh, you went on. You went on to. Um, uh, Internet Explorer to open the internet first time and it was just assumed that yay you're going to use Internet Explorer forever uh, and if you're not particularly tech savvy that's what you might decide to do uh, unless you know somebody that will go you know what Chrome is kind of better let's install that or Firefox might suit you a little bit better let's install that if you don't know that these choices exist you're never going to exploit them and that's what Microsoft got hit with. This is what Google is being hit, or Alphabet, or, you know, over Android is is being hit with. You know, the illusion that what you get in your hand is it, is, is smartphones done forever, you know? Um, and I think it's, given the prevalence of Android, I think this is such an important decision. I mean, if you, you have probably, which browser do you use on your smartphone? I use uh, Chrome, just out of convenience. Exactly. Like you you open your phone, you just assume everything works and you don't even think to look for a different browser. Exactly. Uh, and that's what people did when they were buying PCs back in the day when we bought PCs. Do you remember? Uh, you buy a computer and you'd open up Windows and you would use Internet Explorer to look at the uh, at, at the web. Yep. And that's that's just how you thought the Internet worked. I mean, when I got my first Mac, I assumed that, you know, Safari, Safari was, it. was the browser and, <laughs> yeah. and that was it. You know, and then you find out, well, you know, there's this thing called Firefox out there and you might like to try that because it's got tabbed browsers and wow. <laughs> and then, you know, Google came out with Chrome and people sort of have, have warmed to that. And I think it's the, mo- it's the most used browser in the world at the moment, isn't it? Um I think it is. I, I think it's interesting how, because uh, these things have happened before, all right, uh, as as you've said. Um, but I think it's interesting how when somebody is got, has got an operating system or whatever it happens to be, and they've got certain bits of software built into it, be an email program or a browser or whatever it happens to be, and it's phenomenally successful because the operating system is phenomenally successful and it works. It, that's the mm. thing. It works. The majority of people are like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, whatever. It's convenient. I don't care. It does what I need it to do. And then the mm. EU steps in and says, well, it's anti-competitive. And then once they do and then make it illegal for these companies to uh, uh, install their uh, piece of software as a default, they literally go from hero to zero. Well, and, it's, it's and I'm thinking. Well, well, I'm just thinking of Internet Explorer. Like everybody used Internet Explorer, and then the EU stepped in and said, "Ah, oh, no, you've got to offer a choice." And then, pfft, who uses Internet Explorer now? Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> people know that the alternatives are, you know, they do different things. They're superior. Well, um, the, the, this I is, I'm not arguing on one side, and I'm not arguing for the other. I just think it's interesting uh, how it goes and in some ways you might think to yourself why would I want to build a dominant global brand if some do-gooders are just going to come in and say well you can't do that and you can't do that (laughs) well that's the thing that's a really interesting point if Android ran on 5% of smartphones worldwide would we be having this case no we wouldn't no even even if uh, this you know this is where what there we'll we'll assume we'll say like 18% of smartphones run iOS uh, if the iPhone was that dominant, I mean, you would you would have to mm. have a choice for every app that opens up on it. And, you know, you're a victim of your own success mm. uh, in this case. But I think maybe where the EU is stepping in on this is, is that they're saying that, no, you can, you can bundle it with your software and you can have it as the first choice if you so wish, but you must let people know uh, that there are others available. So it's like when you install Windows, it goes, well, we have Internet Explorer here. Do you want to use this as your default browser or something else? 
That's the question mm. that pops up, yeah. right? Uh, and I think, you know, kind of that is possibly the fairest way of doing it because then people can just use, like me, who are lazy, yeah, I'll just use whatever <laughs> comes with, it's fine. Uh, yeah. Or then there's people who will have specific use, they should be allowed to use the other. However, where Google, I think, have stepped over the mark and where I would say the fine is justified is when they say, well, if you don't use Google, well, then you can't do this, this, and this either. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my... 10 cent. Listen, tell me uh, about uh, kind of related, all right, uh, Tesla cars, okay, they're in the news this week. Do you think uh, we're ever going to get to a, a situation where people will have a choice of the speedometer that they're allowed to use on the screen on a Tesla car? <laughs> well, that's a wonderful level of customization, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, no, you must use the one that came with the Tesla car. <laughs> Listen, well, assuming you can I, get a uh, Tesla car in the first place. Yeah, I, I like Elon Musk. I really, really like Elon Musk. Some of the things he does is crazy, but the way the way he thinks is he thinks what's it, not what we need now or what life is like now. He goes, well, what are people going to need in like 15 years or 20 years or 50 years? Okay. Um, so Tesla cars is one of his big things at the moment, but it's taken a bit of a hit this week. What's the hit? It has, yeah. This is one of the things about um, dealing with somebody who has such grand visions. It's almost like, you know, here's a problem that will occur down the road. or Here's a problem maybe you don't see or understand that's here at the moment. That early adopters will be all over, but that's a very small group. And here we are developing a car that starts at, uh, you're probably going to correct me, what, $30,000? It's, it's, it's reasonable. Yeah, but but there's a couple of things. They can't keep up with production. They've got issues there. They've got issues with suppliers where they're asking suppliers for, for rebates at the moment. Um, and the company's burning through money. I mean, it's it's I think it's a billion dollars in the hole at the moment. Mm. Uh, it is so it is yet to turn a profit and it's it's selling this idea of it's almost almost like Google's moonshot ideas. You know, it's like these are the wacky things and it's going to be it's going to be great when these things eventually make it to market in a consumable form. Uh, the Tesla Model 3, I think it's I think it's almost there. They actually can't keep up with production. That's part of their problem. I think if they actually had a better supply chain, if they had an easier route to market, I think they would be losing less money. They wouldn't have to let as many staff go as they are having to at the moment and the investors wouldn't be getting as spooked as they are because you know when you're dealing with somebody that's you know they're all big ideas it can be very hard to pin them down and say how much is this going to cost and how much am i going to get back for it i mean if you're an investor in tesla um you want to know when when is good to hang around when is good to sell when is good to buy you need certainty um but if you're dealing with somebody that, you know, doesn't deal in certainty, that, you know, sees the big picture, that's a problem. That's a problem for investors. So Elon is kind of see, saying, OK, well, we have problems. We can't make enough cars. We need to adjust. Da, da, da. He's got a big plan where he wants to build some enormous factories in China like Apple do for their iPhones, where they can really turn those cars out. Uh, but that won't be up and running for another five years. So he's kind of got to plug the gap between here and there. Do you think he's going to fall foul of investors who are only interested in the profit line? Or do you think Elon Musk is just one of those very rare special people who will just make it work until the point where it hits critical mass and bam, off he takes? I think I think what he needs to keep the investors on board is he needs a couple of quick wins. He needs to be able to show, you know, 
something really interesting happening with SpaceX that's going to make money now. He needs to show um, uh, an example of Hyperloop working on uh, sort of a, a proper scale within a city, which I know there are plans uh, afoot to do. So he needs to be able to point to things and go, yes, moneymaker over there. Um, Let me ask me. you a question. If you had 10,000 euro that you were willing to lose, okay, um, mm. would you invest it into Tesla? No, I'd put it into Apple. Okay, I'd invest it into Tesla because I actually think there's more growth in Tesla. And everybody and every single review and anybody I know who's driven a Tesla car raves about it. Yeah, okay. That's, Whereas that's- Apple is facing a backlash at the moment, I think, and I think Apple has just grown unless they get another one of those one more things, mm, you know, yeah. I think they're getting very uh, uh, pedestrian at the moment. Listen, uh, time for one more story. Let's go with, uh, actually, do you know, I want to go with this because it ties in with our interview. Uh, Facebook want to put a satellite into space. Tell me everything. Yeah, you you remember that Facebook had this idea of using drones to deliver um, better uh, broadband con- connectivity to remote areas. Mm-hmm. And it sort of tied into their walled garden approach of having uh, a suite of apps that required very little um, uh, bandwidth to run. So instead of requiring maybe 10 megabits to, to run a large suite of apps, you would get uh, one meg uh, and you would be able to run everything. Now, the problem was, of course, that um, such a suite ran uh, on Facebook's, you know, walled garden approach. So if you wanted to be a third party developer or something like that, you might be in with a, a, a tough time getting on uh, getting on Facebook's. Um, what was it called? I can't remember. I, what I the can't remember. Was I can't remember now. what the program was. But anyways, we we know the program yeah. you're talking so, about. So anyway, uh, Facebook trying a, a similar thing to the drones again. This time they're using a satellite called the Athena, and it's due to launch next year. Same mission statement. You know, deliver broadband to remote underserved or underserved areas. Um, it's a great idea. Uh, whether Facebook will accept that this means it kind of has to turn into a telco. Uh, I don't know because they don't really want to turn into anything other than Facebook, whereas the rest of the world is like, no, if you're playing in this space, you're a this. If you're doing this, you're a this. So if you're going to provide connectivity to people, well, chances are you're an ISP. <laughs> well, listen, all this all this conversation Niall, about, you know, kind of big thinkers and Elon Musk and Facebook and satellites and space and all that kind of stuff leads very nicely into our interview this week, because we've talked a, l- a little bit about uh, the space economy over the past year. Uh, but if you're a researcher with an idea or even you're a company with a, an existing product, how do you get involved in space? Well, Mark McCarville is the program manager of DCU Alpha's ESA Maker Space, and his job is to help Irish companies make their mark on the technologies aboard satellites, rockets, and anything else you might think of. He sat down with Niall at Futuroscope earlier this year to tell us everything. So I guess one of the interesting things about the space economy is that there seem to be a couple of different ways that you can ga- engage with it. The first, I guess you would call it the traditional model, where you're a startup or a small business and you approach the ESA looking for a grant to do something. But then there's what's going on in DCU Alpha, which is what you're working on, mm-hmm. where you basically incubate the idea and then bring it to the ESA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how it works. So the idea is that we have challenges that we want to present, and those challenges are based on rapid development so that we can quickly assess whether 
whether a particular technology is going to be relevant to the area that it's actually being used for. So ESA um, know that because of the increase in digitization, they need to be able to get into this more rapid development process. So for the first time, they've designated an amount of money to a third party who subsequently develops and issues tenders and those tenders then are sent out and responded to. Typically the tenders are for up to 30,000 each. They usually have a a development cycle of you know between three and four months. So it's very quickly done, it's very easily done and the essence of it is that we're able to address these issues most quickly and come back with you know relevant answers whether something does or doesn't work and in the event that we find it's interesting and does work then we can progress it forward potentially for further funding using more mainstream ESA methods. So this is kind of a, a challenge-based funding model, really, that instead of sort of going to East and going, oh, by the way, we've done this, it's fantastic, it's a, it's a better booster, that's not what they're interested in. No, no, this is a case of having specifically targeted things that we want to see. So, for example, on the IoT side of things, we know that there are challenges that we have to address because of emerging technology. A lot of these new technologies would use radio frequencies that overlap or are consistent with other satellite services. So it's possible that you can actually, if you like, shoehorn one technology into another one and that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're also trying to look at how cloud technologies and other sort of more IoT based processing uh, systems can be used to process signals um, either to decode them or encode them and then to be able to deliver that data across different services. Um, So basically it's to try and maximise the use of satellite in terms of emergent IoT challenges. Uh, and what I think is kind of interesting is that we're seeing an awful lot of technologies developed on Earth, if you will, for very different uses, and they end up being transferred into the ESA because they solve specific problems. Yes, absolutely. It depends on, on, on various various challenges. So you can get into a situation, for example, you might have some technologies that are maybe to do with uh, you know, integrated circuits. You may have something to do with an antenna design. And what can happen is if you engage with ESA, um, you automatically become part of their, kind of their, their licensing program. So depending on the ESA funding you get, you can um, you basically license it to, to, to ESA and they can use it. Now, they can then, if it's of interest to them, they can then bring it into their technology transfer group and that can be then further expanded or it could be sold onto somebody else. So if you identify a piece of technology that is of value elsewhere, it's possible that ESA can take that on board and if it has a thematic value in, with regard to space or space technology, it's possible for them to actually market it and, and spin it out further on. There is also that sort of still romantic notion about dealing with something with space. I mean, do, does that come with a sort of an aura that you're able to go, oh, I'm working with the European Space Agency? Uh, does it, yeah, I suppose it's a degree, but more, more importantly, it's to, do with, it's to do with the rigor. So it's very much like... Um, think of it like a football team and maybe a bad analogy but like you know uh, the, the likes of the Arisa it'd be a premier division team and you know that if you're able to get funding and effectively play with them that you're capable of that level of, of expertise and that's really a big thing because ESA would expect the same level of uh, technology approach and professionalism in developing a simple terminal for satellite communications as they would for developing a rocket. It's a very it's a very, very exacting process you have to go through and really when you get out the far end and you've ex- executed your project, you can stand off and say, I was able to deliver something to ESA standard, which means that you're able to hold that up as a kind of a badge of honour that you've actually achieved that level of excellence. One issue that a lot of companies have, especially companies that, that are working in maker spaces or in incubators, is the issue of intellectual property. So say you've been working on a, on a device or a piece of technology using ESA funding and maybe they decide to take it, maybe they decide to don't. What is the status of the company or the individual working to solve a specific challenge? 
Well, generally, the IP retained is retained by the company. Now, it depends on, on the circumstance. But, for example, in the makerspace, um, all the IP is retained by the companies. But you license the developed entity to ESA and to DCU. If they want to use it, they can. So what happens at the end of the project, you collate all of your source code and your design files and whatever other... Um, thematic information you need for your project and you then put it on a memory stick and you would give it to me I would then post it to ESA and I would post it then to the IP guys in DCU now the IP is still retained by the people who developed it one of the key things ESA want to do in any project like this is they want to be able to identify the IP so particularly with these kind of quick development open source kind of models when you initiate the project you list all the known IP you're going to use you then are able to de- define the stuff you've developed so when it comes out the far end you can differentiate between what was the original source IP and what you developed and that's kind of how it works but generally generally the IP is retained by the developing entity so now we've established that you know there, there are points of access there to work with the European Space Agency um, how exactly you know I don't want to say how easy is it but when you're managing that process when you're working with companies um, is there that fear of giant bureaucracy there, especially when putting together tenders? Is it, do people have this concern that, you know, I'm submitting to one of the largest entities within the EU? Is this worth my while? Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of my, a large, large part of my business is actually doing that for clients. It's what I do effectively. So we, in, in my consultancy business, we take on all of that bureaucracy because there's, a, there's an approach to doing it. There's a method to doing it. And like any of these large bid processes, um, there are approaches that you need to take in terms of language, in terms of formatting, in terms of, of overall kind of editorial approach. And that's what we do for clients. And in doing so, we kind of remove that onerous uh, bureaucratic burden off them. And that's, what, that's how we've been successful for the last eight years doing that, you know. And when you're looking at the scale of the, the space economy, if you will, I imagine Ireland's isn't exactly massive at the moment, but there, there is actually, it's, it's quite healthy, especially when you look at the return on investment that companies are making. Yeah, typically when we look at the, the, the sort of analytics on the value propositions, the return on investment is between four and seven times, and that's substantial. Um, and when you look at what it does in terms of, as you say, the kudos it brings to the companies, um, it can be very, very beneficial. So for small startups or small companies who want to be able to leverage ease of funding, um, if they get into a situation where perhaps they're looking for further funding, if they've proven that they're able to do a specific project and deliver it to ESA's terms, it's definitely of huge benefit to them down the road, you know, and it can help them, in, if, if you like, um, nailing up their ability to do work, you know, and, and being able to fly the flag for their own perspective. And looking at specific pro- problems and, and uh, companies in Ireland that have been successful at ESA at the moment, uh, you've touched upon uh, RF, radio technology there, but there's also been uh, advances made in material sciences and uh, wearables. Yes, for sure. So, for example, th- there's, there's a company called Enbio, um, and they, they originally were doing uh, prosthesis. Um, and by reason of the research and development that they have done, it has actually ended up with them developing um, systems that are integrated now in satellite and developing coatings that are used in satellite. So going from something that was basically an implant-based idea, they've now migrated to a, a satellite company, and that is the main thrust of their business. And they're an astonishing company. They're, they're, they're exceptional, you know, um, very, very talented guys, but that's done here in Ireland. And we can do many things. I mean, the guidance systems for satellites, a lot of the software is written in Ireland. Um, we're doing RF uh, interfacing, air interfacing, a lot of that can be done in Ireland. So there's a pile of things we can do here. We don't necessarily have to have massive launch vehicles. We don't have to have launch pads. We can be building component-level systems that can then be used in 
into the space industry globally, you know. So although uh, there, there's the European Space Agency, there's the emergent private industry, so companies like SpaceX, for example. So the the uh, democratization of space and the movement away from having funding coming from government to the level... Um, exchequer kind of funding or sort of large large national funding is moving towards a kind of a more privatized thing and the same thing will happen here so basically what we're saying is that this industry is going to grow and that it's possible that you can develop systems and solutions for space that can be integrated in at a level so it's important that you're not um awe-stricken or put off by the whole idea of space because it's very very possible to build systems that can be integrated and you can be a com- an important component in an overall solution so what kind of projects are exciting you at the moment because i imagine working in a makerspace you see an awful lot of things come in and some of them you think straight off the bat okay it's, it's not a runner but thanks for coming and some mm. of them you're, you really want to champion yeah, I think that there's, there's, there's a series of them there, really. Um, there's going to be a lot of emphasis, I think, on spectrum management going forward. Um, I also think that integrating some of the sensor technology, miniaturization is a big part of it as well. Um, if you can build multi-radio systems that can facilitate terrestrial and satellite, that's a big area. Um, very difficult in some cases, particularly with the emergence of millimeter wave technology, um, you're going to have to be very, very advanced in what you can do. But if you crack it, uh, there's a big market there to be, to be uh, successfully attacked if you can, if you can do it. And that was Mark McCarvel from DCU Alpha's ESA Makerspace chatting with Niall Kitson. That's almost it for our show this week. The uh, programme supported, as always, by the PRTG Network Monitor from Paisler.com. Just before we go, though, Niall is uh, still with us. Uh, have we got one more thing, just one thing we couldn't squeeze into the programme that's on the website? Yeah, we do, and you're going to love this. Remember AirPower, Apple's uh, much-fated attempt to do wireless charging? Yeah, but, oh, don't tell me. It's a, go on. Well, Samsung has a competitor, and it might be making it to market before. Oh, I am so jumping on the website to find out all about that right now. While you're there, uh, remember, you can always get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters, and more at our website. It's techcentral.ie, or just listen to us each week online on Fridays at 5 p.m. on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. For myself, I'm Niall Kitson at Tech Central HQ. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.